Morning, everyone. Really good to be with you this morning, and uh, thank you for uh, the warm welcome we've had. Um, good to come over from Midhurst and uh, be in Haven as a family, and looking forward to, to doing that more in the coming months. Um, so my name's Thomas, and Catherine, my uh, beautiful assistant there, just uh, got me some water. <laughs> she's not my assistant, she's my lovely wife. But um, <laughs> we're, um, we're going to be in uh, Exodus chapter 15 this morning and carrying on um, our series there. So I want to encourage you to um, get your Bibles out and, and have a look at this with me. The words will be on the screen, um, but it's really good to, to read the Word of God together and to, to allow God to speak through that. Um, the Bible is really clear that, that, that the Word of God is alive. The Bible is alive, that God speaks to us through that by His Holy Spirit. And so um, that's why we preach from the Bible. That's why we, we read Scripture together. And I just feel this morning that God is, is really wanting to encourage us, uh, to teach us some things about worship and to teach us some things about trusting him. And I think all the words that have come this morning, even the songs we were singing, I just felt they, they just fitted into everything God's been speaking to me about this passage over the last uh, few days. So um, if you want to turn to Exodus chapter 15, I'll just give you a little brief run-through of, of where we've got to before this, in case you weren't around for the last few weeks and months. Um, and so you've got the, the, the people of God, you've got this man called Abraham and his descendants, uh, the people of God, you've got this family of 70 that go into Egypt and they live there for 430 years and during that time they end up as slaves. They end up in slavery to Pharaoh, um, who is not a nice man, and the people of Egypt. And so they're under great suffering, um, they're God's people, there is a promise over them uh, that God will rescue them. And, and as if you've been around, what you've heard over the last few weeks, and you can go back and listen to them online if you haven't, is that this is not just a piece of history that we're interested in, but actually God in his sovereignty, his providence, is actually writing our story of slavery to sin and then redemption and salvation through Jesus Christ and what he did. And it's also Jesus' story, which is just incredible when we will look a little bit of that as well this morning. And so I want you to see yourself in this. And it might be that you're not a Christian this morning. It might be that you're here for the first time and, and you're, you're wondering what this church stuff's all about. You're just looking for some hope. I want to assure you that you will find some here and that God welcomes everyone in. There is no one beyond the grace of Jesus. There is no one... Um, that God cannot save and cannot invite into this story. So it becomes a part of your story as well. And so um, that's where we've got to. And so last week, Joe talked about uh, crossing the Red Sea and it finished in, in Exodus 14. And what you've got is approximately 2 million people that have come through the Red Sea, chased down by Pharaoh in his rage with all his, um, his army to destroy them. And God miraculously opens the water and they just walk through on dry land. It's absolutely incredible. A total miracle. Not some freak of nature, but God performing a great miracle of rescue and salvation for God's people. And so they're on the other side. And I want you to imagine the scene that the waters have come back in. We see at the end of 14 that the waters come and, and basically God kills Pharaoh and all his army and utterly defeats the, the enemies, the slave masters of his people. And God had given them plenty of chances to let them go without that, but Pharaoh was too proud. And so the people of Israel are now standing on the shore of the Red Sea, 
and their reaction is one of spontaneous praise because they've suddenly seen this enormous... I mean, just imagine it. Just imagine being hunted down and chased, being utterly powerless, and God does that. Imagine as a church just coming through that and being standing on the shore and you just see all the, the bodies of the, the Egyptians, the, the former slave masters. Utterly incredible. And they suddenly realize as a people that God has just completely rescued them. And so that kind of sets the scene. So we're going to read it um, together. Um, I may break into song. Um, it, it's possible because I've been singing this with my children because I thought, I wonder how this would sound as a song. It's not good, if I'm honest. It doesn't translate that well. Um, so I apologize if it happens, but it's in my head and I can't get it out. Um, <clears throat> and so I, I won't, I won't. But maybe at the end, if, if I feel you're with me. Um, so let's read it together. Exodus 15, starting in verse 1. Then Moses, so they're standing on the shore. Then Moses and the Israelites sang this song to the Lord. I will sing to the Lord, for he is highly exalted. Both horse and driver he has hurled into the sea. And you'll see that's actually the, the kind of chorus of the song. I will sing to the Lord, for he is highly exalted. Both horse and driver he's hurled into the sea. He's defeated our enemies. And so their response is one of song and praise and worship together, acknowledging what God's just done. The Lord is my strength and my defense. He has become my salvation. They've recognized that God alone. So this is something they couldn't have done themselves. Sorry, the word's coming up. I don't know if you can see them well enough up there. Um, and so their response is just to, to thank God, to recognize that he is the one who has saved them. And it says, he is my God. It's very personal. And I will praise him. My father's God. And I will exalt him. The Lord is a warrior. The Lord is his name. Pharaoh's chariots and his army, he has hurled into the sea. The best of Pharaoh's officers are drowned in the sea. Imagine how that felt. You know, these are the people that have oppressed them for 400 years, in essence, and particularly so in the last 50 or 60 years. The deep waters have covered them. You know, water represents God's judgment. We talked about that last week as they came through the Red Sea. It's like the waters of judgment. You see it with the flood, and you see it here with the Red Sea. The waters have covered them. They sank to the depths like a stone. Your right hand, Lord, was majestic in power. Your right hand, Lord, shattered the enemy. In the greatness of your majesty, you threw down those who opposed you. You unleashed your burning anger. It consumed them like stubble. It's really interesting at the beginning of Exodus we see that the people of God are made to take the stubble and start building bricks. Pharaoh punishes them in that way. And here you have them singing that the people of Israel, the people of Egypt have been consumed like stubble. I like this verse, that by the blast of your nostrils the waters piled up. I mean it's an image of God, isn't it? It's like the nostrils of God just breathing out and opening up the waters. Remember they're singing this. I almost feel like singing it because it, it really does impact. The surging waters stood up like a wall. The deep waters congealed in the heart of the sea. Imagine you've just walked through the Red Sea and seen the waters up. Like, oh my goodness, the, the, the wall of water around me. It's like God did that by his nostrils, apparently. The enemy boasted, I will pursue. 
This is Pharaoh speaking now. Listen to how many eyes there are here. I will pursue, I will overtake them. I will divide the spoils. I will gorge myself on them. I will draw my sword and my hand will destroy them. It's just a reference to Pharaoh's pride. You've got Moses who's actually led his people through the sea saying, my God did this. And then he's referencing Pharaoh's words. Now, I'm going to destroy you. I'm going to get you. This is who he was battling with. Moses goes on. But you blew with your breath and the sea covered them. They sank like lead in the mighty waters. Who among the gods is like you, Lord? Now, I think sometimes we can ignore it when the Bible talks about the gods. And actually, you've got all these, um, uh, the, the, what are they called in Egypt, the plagues. And each of those plagues, as we looked at a few weeks ago, was representative of one of the gods, one of the idols that the Egyptians worshipped. And actually, we live in a world full of idols, full of false gods. But it's like, who among the gods is like you, Lord? One of the things that God Almighty, Yahweh, revealed was that he is the one true God to the people of Egypt. But actually, they lived, or the people of Israel, but the people of Egypt lived in a world where they believed in gods everywhere. They bowed down and worshipped all kinds of false gods and idols. It's really important that God wanted to be glorified, wants us to proclaim his name as the one true God, Yahweh, the creator of heaven and earth. So who among the gods is like you, Lord? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glory, working wonders? You stretch out your right hand and the earth swallows your enemies. Utter power of God. In your unfailing love, you will lead the people you have redeemed. You think about our salvation, it is all a work of God. As Joe said last week, as the people came through the Red Sea, the only thing they had to do was walk. They couldn't make the sea go up. They couldn't do anything to save themselves other than walk forward and trust that God was going to save them totally and completely. In your strength, you will guide them to your holy dwelling. The nations will hear and tremble. Anguish will grip the people of Philistia. I found this bit interesting. We've got four place names here. And if you know the story of the people of God and the the rest of the the first five books of the Bible, they're going to go towards the promised land. God has promised them this land that they're going to have, a land flowing with milk and honey. and, And this wonderful salvation that he's offered them culminates with that. And actually what we see is that the people of God they end up fearing the people of the land, particularly the Philistines, the giants. Remember the story of David and Goliath. So it's going to take them another 500 years to conquer some of these people. But in their moment of salvation, recognizing who God is, they're utterly confident that God can destroy these people. And yet it's the same people, and we'll look at this in in a bit, not in great detail, but just how their hearts can change so quickly. But in this moment of worship, the nations will hear and tremble. Anguish will grip the people of Philistia. I bet it will. They'll hear about what God did to save them from Egypt. The chiefs of Edom will be terrified. The leaders of Moab will be seized with trembling. The people of Canaan, so that's the land of Israel that they're going into, will melt away. Terror and dread will fall on them by the power of your arm. They will be as still as stone until your people pass by. Lord, until the people you brought pass by. Verse 17, you will bring them in and plant them on the mountain of your inheritance, the place, Lord, you made for your dwelling, the sanctuary, Lord, your hands established. 
So they're talking about the mountain of your inheritance. They're going to go to Mount Sinai where the Ten Commandments come, but they're actually going on to Jerusalem, known as Mount Zion. And it was the place where the temple was going to be built, where the presence of God was going to come eventually. But actually for them, that means that. But for us, actually, we know there's going to be a new Jerusalem, Mount Zion in heaven, when heaven and earth come together and the presence of God will be with his people. We're looking forward to the place you made for your dwelling. The sanctuary, Lord, your hands established. The Lord reigns forever and ever. There's something in that about the, just the utter kingliness of God. He reigns. Pharaoh does not reign. Pharaoh's in the sea. Think about the people in your life that have power. Perhaps power over you, control. People in this world that dictators and, and just people with huge influence. We can be so afraid sometimes, can't we, of what's going on when we read the news. And yet we need to declare, no, no, the Lord reigns forever and ever. He is utterly in control. There is no one that can stop the hand. You know, if anyone was scary, it was Pharaoh. He is the biggest, baddest baddie so far in the Bible, and God has just destroyed him. And it wasn't even difficult for him. And so we get to the end of that song, and the next bit's a bit of narrative. So it says, when, so verse 19, when Pharaoh's horses, chariots, and horsemen went into the sea. So it's retelling the story again here. The Lord brought the waters of the sea back over them, but the Israelites walked through the sea on dry ground. <coughs> then Miriam, the prophet, Aaron's sister, took a tambourine in her hand, and all the women followed her with tambourines and dancing. In fact, I think it says timbrel in my Bible, but one I've copied here. Miriam sang to them, and then it's the, it's the opening verses of the song again. So it's sing to the Lord, for he is highly exalted. Both horse and driver he has hurled into the sea. I said to Catherine, oh, shall I get them to all sing this together? Come on, sing to the Lord. She said, no. For he is highly exalted. Both horse and driver he has hurled into the sea. And it's like Miriam has, has been there. She's, she's the worship leader of Israel. She's stirring the people saying, come on, sing to the Lord, for he is highly exalted. The horse and driver he's hurled into the sea. He's defeated our enemies. He's defeated our slave masters. We are no longer in captivity. That's what they're singing about. That is the right response to the salvation that they've just received. And it's the same for us when you have encountered God. When you understand who Jesus is. That he has gone before us. That he has walked in our place that he has lived a perfect life before his father that he's died a death on the cross his blood shed for us that he got baptized to fulfill all righteousness he walked exactly the path that the people of israel walked and the people of god will still walk today when god saves you he saves you from captivity to sin and utterly defeats it on the cross jesus said it is finished when he took the wrath of god and he averted it from you and I if we put our faith in him. And we're saved. Isn't that wonderful news? That the, the people of Israel, they're saved. Their captors have been utterly destroyed. You are saved if you have put your faith in Jesus. There's no going back. It's been done. It's complete. There's a whole life to live ahead. But actually our response to that salvation, our singing this morning, our worship... It's one of a, a God who has revealed himself to us, a personal God who loves you, who has done everything for you to make you right with a holy God. It's wonderful news. And we are saved. So what does that mean for us? 
what happens is actually when we get saved is that we look to the promised land. It's like, right, come and be a Christian. It's just the best. Come meet Jesus. Come on, Alpha. Come and, come and get to know this wonderful God and he'll change your life. And people go, oh, I want that. I've got no hope. I don't know what to do with my shame. I, I've got this sin in my life. I'm just struggling. Jesus can change that. Jesus can give you freedom. Jesus can set you free. And what happens is we come to faith in Jesus. But then we don't go straight into the promised land because he's got some work to do. And it's the process of sanctification. It's a big word, I know, but it's how God then starts to work in you and work in your character to continue to carry out his plans, which is exactly what he's going to do here with the people of Israel. Often, and not often, I think always, when someone becomes a Christian, unless it's right at the end of your life, the very next step for you is to start to work out your relationship with God in fear and trembling. Not to be saved, but because he saved you, because he's rescued you. In the same way Jesus, when he was baptized, he glorified God. God said, you know, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. He then goes into the wilderness for a time of testing. And I believe the same happens for us. And so the next uh, scene, if you like, in verse 22, says the waters of Marah and Elam. Then Moses led Israel from the Red Sea and they went into the desert of Shur. So they've done their singing, they've rejoiced, they've celebrated. And this is like the next part of the story now, just in the same few days. They go to the desert of Shur. They're off to the promised land. You know, the song's still ringing in the head. I bet they're still singing it and cheering it. For three days, they traveled in the desert without finding water. There's a bit of a disaster going on here. They've just been rescued by God. They've celebrated how wonderful he is. And now they've gone three days with no water, two million people. They obviously had some with them that they took out of Egypt. So what do they do? Do they continue to praise God? They've just seen this wonderful miracle. What would you do? You give your life to Jesus and you follow what he says and then things start to go wrong. What do you do? You just keep praising him, don't you? You don't grumble and complain. You don't say, why God, why me? Well, the people of Israel did. Three days they traveled in the desert without finding water. When they came to Mahara, they could not drink its water because it was bitter. That is why the place is called Mahara. So the people grumbled against Moses, saying, what are we to drink? Three days after they've just seen God do that, God's just brought them. I mean, imagine seeing that miracle. You see the miracle of salvation in your life. You celebrate, Jesus, you're so amazing. We see it so often in the church. I mean, I've been through it. I'm not saying this is everyone else. I've done it, and it's like, oh, God, you're amazing. You're so wonderful. You're all-powerful. There's nothing that can stop you. I'm going to worship you, God. You're the most incredible Savior. Oh, why is this going on? Why is this happening in my life? What am I going to do about this? What if we haven't got enough money at the end of the month? Oh, this person at work is an absolute nightmare. Ruining my life. God, I can't believe you put me here. It's like, what's the right response for us? And the people of Israel were just immature. Now, if you go back through Moses' story, which we've looked at, he was the same. He met God in the burning bush, you know, in that moment, realized Yahweh was there, revealed himself to him in a burning bush. And he spends the first few chapters of Exodus kind of moaning and crying, I'm not good enough, I can't do this. Why have you called me, God? I can't speak. You need Aaron. And so he's gone through a process of sanctification. He had his time in the wilderness. He, he ended up running away from Egypt. And we've seen all of that before. And so it's not that Moses was just better. It's just that Moses had been sanctified. 
And it's just the same for us. Those of us that have been Christians a long time, you're nodding along because you know what sanctification's like. It's not that fun. But actually, you never regret it. And I just personal testimony. The last few years for me, I felt God call me back into a family business. And I thought, it's going to be wonderful. I'm going to go here. It's going to be so good. And I'm going to bring godly values. And everyone's going to think it's wonderful. It's going to flourish. <laughs> Gemma's laughing. She knows a bit about the story. Yeah. Me, me, me. Look at what I'm going to do. And uh, yeah, it's been really, really hard. Utterly hard. There was a moment in... December, just gone, and I'm texting the elders, lying on my office floor, saying, I can't string a sentence together, my brain's going to explode. My heart was pounding, I had pain in my arm. I thought I was going to die. I was just like, I can't, I can't even live at the moment. And do you know what? In that moment, not in that moment, I, the guys prayed for me and everything lifted, which was great. But as I drove home that day, I made excuses and left the office. As I drove home, I suddenly realized that I could worship God even if I couldn't do anything else, couldn't function, couldn't run this business, couldn't do anything normal. But I could worship God, and I started to worship him in my car, and I was still getting all these chest pains. I thought, I'm having a heart attack. And I thought, God, I'm going to praise you. are worthy of praise. You saved me. You're in control. And you know what? He just met with me in the most amazing way. And I thought, oh, that's what Paul's talking about when he's talking about his suffering in the Bible. In the New Testament, it's like, James saying, consider it pure joy when you face trials of every kind. So suddenly I knew what that felt like. I had joy. And stuff, but that was like four years of hard sanctification. But I tell you what, it's totally worth it. And God's just brought me through it really quickly. I mean, I'm not saying I'm out of it, but that's what he does. And there'll be a time again. And it wasn't probably even that big a deal if I explained what was going on. But in my head and in my world, it just felt massive. It felt so painful and hard. And so... You've got the same thing going on with the people of Israel here. And maybe for you, that's what you're going through right now. Maybe there's just hard things in your life. You thought trusting God would be better than this. You thought his plan would have come to fruition by now. But encouragement for this, no, just trust him. Remember the worship of your salvation. If you put your trust in him, he really will come through. He promises that. So... Then Moses, verse 25, cried out to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a piece of wood. This is just another bizarre miracle. piece of wood. He threw it into the water, and the water became fit to drink. Now, people, scholars, trying to look at this, going, all right, so what's going on? I wonder if there's a special tree that if you chuck it in some water, it completely like, unpollutes it. Whatever it was that was making the water bitter, they haven't found one yet that will, will have such an effect. So I'm going to say it was probably a miracle. <coughs> But what happened was the people grumbled, but Moses actually showed the right response. He didn't grumble, he cried out to God. When you hit a hard time in your life, the best thing to do is cry out to God. And I'd text the elders and just say, I can't do this, please help me. I was crying out to God, I was like, pray for me. I was crying out, it wasn't just me praying, I was like, I need people to pray for me here. And it literally in an instant, I had another colleague who was also struggling, just something lifted incredible miraculous just something lifted and I just suddenly felt now God's on this he's got it and so Moses does the same thing he chucks a bit of wood into the water and suddenly the water becomes drink becomes sweet in some translations and then he says um, so the water came fit to drink there the Lord issued a ruling and instruction for them and put them to the test so this is verse uh, 25 still so it's really interesting they haven't had the Ten Commandments yet 
They've had some instruction about the Passover, but actually God says, no, I'm going to give you a ruling and instruction and put them to test. And he says this, if you listen carefully to the Lord your God and do what is right in his eyes, if you pay attention to his commands and keep all his decrees, I will not bring on you any of the diseases I brought on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord who heals you. So it's another revelation to his people of who he is. And so he's not making a threat here, but he's saying, actually, the people of Egypt, they dishonored me. They lived in a way that was just utterly reprehensible to a holy God. Don't live like that because it's going to have a really bad effect on your lives. You need to trust me and obey me. And so obedience, we don't like that word, but actually we've talked early on about the the slavery, that what God calls the people of Israel out of Egypt for is to come and worship him. And the words worship and serve and work, they're all the same word. So they go from being slaves to Egypt and Pharaoh to slaves to God. And the Bible's really clear that when you give your life to Jesus, you become a slave to righteousness, to Jesus. We don't like that word. We don't like the idea of it, but actually slavery and worship, it's, it's all the same thing. We're worshippers of Jesus. That's what he's called you to do, is to worship him and to trust him. And so when we go into the wilderness, Jesus goes into the wilderness for 40 days and he's tested by the devil. And he passes it in a way that none of us will. But it's good news because Jesus did for us. And Satan offers him all kinds of things. And one of the most interesting things that he offers him is power if only Jesus will worship Satan. And it's like there's something about worship that even Satan would rather have worship than power. And there's something in the human psyche, in the the essence of sin, that we would rather be worshipped, have praise, than even having power. We want power as well, but Pharaoh, he just wanted to exalt himself. I, I, I. And you think about people when they talk about God and, and a good God of just, you know, well, I've been a good person, I've lived a life, you know, I've done this, I've done that, I've tried my best. It's like, but have you worshipped God? The essence of sin is a lack of worship of the creator of the universe. Paul says in Romans, anything that does not come from faith is sin. And so to worship God is what we were made to do. It's who we are. Because God is the most glorious being in the whole of creation. He is the creator. He is the only one worthy of our praise. For a human, it would be wrong for us to say, well, you must come and worship me. We know that's wrong. We know that's wicked. But for God to say that is absolutely right and true because he is the essence of goodness. He is what we were made for. He made us to delight in him. And when we do that, we actually find the fulfillment of our lives. And so the right response to God is always worship. And not worship of ourselves, but worship of him. And that is actually the battle for most people is, do you want to worship God or do you want to be worshipped? What was the temptation in the garden? It's like, no, you will not die if you eat that fruit, but you'll become like God. That was Satan's desire. He wanted to become like God. And there's an essence in which we want that as well in our sinfulness. And so when we recognize who God is, we get freed from that desire. And God works that out in us through sanctification. And then it finishes in verse 27. Then they came to Elim, where there were 12 springs and 70 palm trees. So God's rescued them again. You know, they were probably about, they can't go much longer than three days without any water. 
They probably had a bit. Can you imagine all those people? But God's come through for them again, and then he takes them on to the next step. And what does he do this time? He blesses them, and he says, He came to Elam where there were 12 springs and 70 palm trees, and they camped there near the water. It's just really interesting. You know, it isn't like they've got wells to dig. Oh, there might be some water here. Let's dig. No, there's springs of water coming out of the ground. This is just God's provision. It's God's blessing. It's the next part of the journey. He has taken care of them. And just the numbers, 12 and 70, really interesting, 12 tribes of Israel. <coughs> you know, they were very tribal people. They would have been in their tribe. You know, they'd have had a spring each. There's enough. There's abundance. God has given them what they need. And even the 70 palm trees, it says before, there were 70 elders leading God's people. And there's lots of numbers in the Bible that just are representative of things. And 70 and 12 is, is God's numbers for completion. There's a sense in which God has given them what they need when they need it. And we're going to go on and see next week about how God continues to provide for them. And one of his principles is he always gives us enough at exactly the right time that we can trust him. He doesn't necessarily give us enough for tomorrow, and we're going to see that in coming weeks, but he gives us enough for today. Has God given you enough to get through today? Have you got enough to then trust him for tomorrow? That's part of our maturing as Christians. Is It's not about, but what about this in six months' time? God, I don't know what's going he'll, he'll deal with that when you get there. Part of walking with Jesus is going, I've got enough for today, God. I'm okay. I've got food. I've got clothes. I've got people who love me. I've got your word. I've got your Holy Spirit at work in me. He'll give you enough to do what he's called you to do. And so really as a sort of way of summary, just we respond to our salvation with worship. Our salvation should lead us to worship our Savior. And worship is the right response to God when we know him. Is that your response to God? It's something you can learn to do. It's not something that just comes naturally. But actually, I'll encourage you, start to worship God. Do you read your Bible? He speaks through this. I just, I'm just finding this to become more and more precious in my life, in my walk with God. And I know time, years of just, I'd read a verse and I'd be like, tick. Done my verse for today. Come on, God, you owe me one now. And it's like, now I'm like I'm reading chunks of it. I'm like, God, you're speaking to me through this. I had a conversation with a guy recently and he was just, I need a word from God. And I said, well, you, you press into your Bible. No, 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 I need, I need to hear from God about my situation. Read your Bible. No, 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 I need a prophetic word. I need, where's the prophet in this church? Who's going to give me a prophet? Read your Bible. God speaks to us through this more clearly than anything. And if he speaks outside of it, we test it against this. He will speak right into your life so much. I get from there, and it's like God just starts speaking through his Holy Spirit. It's so powerful. I can't encourage you enough, and it will be the biggest battle you face. But it will also be the thing that matures you the quickest, that gives you the most joy and peace in Jesus, is reading your Bible, but reading it to, to meet with him, to encounter him, not to tick a box. I kind of don't like it on the Bible app where you get your streak. Anyone seen that? And it's like, oh, you've read it for 16 days in a row. And it's like, and then you haven't. Oh, failure. It's a relationship with God. Don't, don't come to it to feel good. Come to it to meet God and counter God. Ask him, pray. I promise you it will change your life. It will sanctify you and it will get you through those hard times because you'll realize who he is. See your story in the Bible. Um, just skip through some of that. Um, 
I'll just read this because it, it was a quote I read, but the church is talking about the sanctification. It says, the church is now living in the wilderness between the first and second comings of Christ. So this is who we are as Christians. We're in this, this time of the now and not yet. Jesus has said it is finished, but actually we know he's coming again. So as Christians, we actually enter into the wilderness still because there is a battle going on. God is building his kingdom. He's got work he still wants to do. And I think, think of this for us as heaven, you know, here. Like, there is a job to be done in heaven. God, if God hasn't come back yet, it's because he still wants to save people. You get that? And so take this now personally. God, what, what have you got for me in this wilderness time? How am I going to glorify you? It says this, The church is now living in the wilderness between the first and second comings of Christ. He came once to save us. He will come again to lead us home. In the meantime, we are on a long and difficult pilgrimage, which God is using to make us holy. As the Bible says in Acts, we must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God. This does not mean our salvation is not secure. It is secure. And God will bring us to our journey's end. But the way is still hard. We will face disappointment and difficulty, discouragement and doubt. All our problems and persecutions are meant to teach us to depend on God alone have absolute confidence in his faithfulness it is important for us to know where we are in the christian life we have not yet reached the promised land we are still in the wilderness where god is sanctifying us knowing this keeps us from having the wrong expectations and also enables us to consider it pure joy whenever we face trials of many kinds because we know that the testing of our faith develops perseverance and so um, ignore the slides that, that might be on there because I'm not going to go through them all. But I just want to lead us in a response um, to that, if that's all right. And I don't know if... Um, where's Lou? She's there. Um, if you want to come up and, and play. But I think just as a, an encouragement, God can miraculously save us. And then we tend to forget who he is. We can become bitter I think that's something we should repent of, where we grumble and complain about how tough life is. God knows. He's, he's with us. He saved you. He saved you for something. Why don't, you, why don't you stand with me? Let's just, if you want to close your eyes, put your hands out if you want to before God. If you're not a Christian this morning, I just want to offer, as I am entitled to as a, a preacher of the gospel, <laughs> offer you the opportunity to come and say yes to Jesus. Come and step into faith. Maybe you've thought yourself a Christian, but you thought, actually, I don't really get any joy out of this. I just do it because I'm worried about hell. Maybe this morning you need to say, no, I want you to save me, Jesus. I want a relationship with you. I want to come in to your kingdom and, and do the work that you've got for me to do. I want to participate in the glory of lifting up your name.